Jesus, uh, would you speak to your people today? Uh, we ask that you would send the Spirit in here and that you would speak to us, um, not just in a way that we mentally grow in our knowledge, but that we grow in our hearts and our knowing of you, God, um, that your people would be transformed as we see Jesus more clearly, clearly in the, the grace and the wonder of the gospel more clearly. We ask that you do that through Jake today, that uh, you'd bless us with listening ears and, uh, yeah, Spirit-empowered hearts change. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, I am going to, um, I wasn't planning this, uh, open with uh, just a little bit of a confession, I think. Feeling a little bit choked up uh, today. We've been running about uh, 20 months in Alice, uh, in in, uh, in Port Adelaide, and um, we started with about 10, 12 people, uh, and I'm feeling very nostalgic, maybe, um, but very proud of you guys. Uh, you are standing on the premises of taking significant ground for the Lord. Uh, you are coming a family, a spiritual family. Um, Lord will test you and, and uh, refine you. Uh, there was a period there, over six weeks, we met in five different locations. Uh, we were meeting in a Navy bar. They kept kicking us out on the Friday night. Uh, the barmaid was practicing wicker and she hated us. And so we met in an alleyway. We met in two pubs. We met next to a chook pen in someone's backyard. We met on the beach. And yet, and I was feeling very much the weight and the burden of, of, of those things. And so I found that everyone else found it a great joy. Uh, and, and they were persevering and being formed tighter together. Uh, I was the only one who was stressing through that. So I just want to encourage you, uh, there will be uh, always opportunities when you serve the Lord for perseverance. Uh, he will call you and form you into a new thing through perseverance. But the joys um, you will encounter of, uh, of sharing the gospel with people who don't know it uh, and being a vibrant church family um, We've got people coming from prison. We've got a number of uh, mur convicted murderers, uh, uh, alcoholics, drug dealers. Um, if you name it at the moment, uh, we are seeing new life, and, and the Lord is calling you uh, to participate in that. And uh, I just want to say uh, I love you guys. You are uh, on the verge of doing something significant for the Lord in, in making a gospel church here. So I'm just, yeah, I just wanted to say that. Uh, I wasn't expecting to be kind of taken back to our start, but I am. Uh, now we are in Luke 22. Uh, we're going to continue. Uh, as we mentioned, this is the, la the end of the Last Supper, Christ's uh, final meal with his disciples. Uh, he's just kind of corrected them in a debate that had about who is the greatest. Okay, they've been fighting it out. Who is the greatest? It's actually an old argument for them. Right through the Gospels, we see them return to it. The word there um, in the Greek suggests that they love having this argument. They love having this argument about who is the greatest amongst them. Uh, you will see that if you hang around enough ministry teams. You can see that across churches today. But who is the greatest? Christ has just corrected that argument. Uh, and now, as we begin today's text, uh, Jesus refocuses his intention and zooms in on the Apostle Peter. Uh, I think what we see in this transition as we begin the text today is that Jesus is zooming in on the one, if we were witnesses to these events, would assume was the greatest. Okay, Peter, if we were kind of videoing the events that were happening around Galilee and on their road to Jerusalem, Peter is kind of the one we would recognize as having 
the, the, the genuine credentials to be considered great. All right. he's, he's always listed first amongst the apostles, which we take to mean he was recognized as the leader of them. Uh, he was a businessman who owned fishing boats. You need a strong work ethic and an entrepreneurial mindset to make that happen. Uh, it's in one of his fishing boats, actually, that Peter uh, witnesses uh, Jesus with them, direct them to a miraculous catch of fish, and it's where he responds and he says, I am a sinful man, right? He's confronted with the power and authority of Jesus Christ, and his response is, I am a sinful man. And that's when he gives up everything to follow Jesus Christ. It's on the road. Uh, Peter will be the first to declare that Jesus is the Christ that they've been waiting for. Okay, so he's the first one to make that declaration amongst the disciples. And Jesus responds, on this rock, which is this confession, I will be build my church. Peter is significant. Uh, we can't overlook that Peter has genuine credentials for greatness in their argument. But if we've followed the journey towards Jerusalem, we also see the old Peter re-emerging. He is the apostle who disagrees with Jesus the most. He's the one who refused to have his feet washed, who will say, surely not you, Jesus, this won't happen to you, correcting or attempting to correct Jesus in his mission. So now as Jesus prepares in his last night, in his last supper with his gathered disciples, right, he's preparing them for ministry after his death, he begins with Peter. And I'll begin uh, Luke twenty two thirty one, and he says, Simon, Simon, look out. Interesting. Simon, he says. Let's pause here. Because Simon, as you may be aware, was Peter's original name, the name he had before he followed Jesus. Jesus changed his name to Peter, which meant rock. Right? So this belief that uh, that Peter has given and confessed to, this is kind of linked to Peter by the naming, renaming of him to Peter, which means rock. But now Jesus isn't referring to that Peter who has made this confession of faith. He's referring to him as his name before following Christ, as Simon. Right? He's throwing his memory back, Simon. So he's saying, Peter, go back for a second. Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. No one's ever said that to me. I think it would get my attention. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. We might say here, if we're paraphrasing, uh, that Satan has asked God for permission to put Peter through the ringer. Others might say to tear him apart. It's interesting, we won't go down this road, but Satan needs God's permission to operate against God's people. And he's asking right now in this case to test the guy who everyone sees as the leader. Right? He wants to test the one who doesn't see himself as a sinner like he did originally, but as a leader. It's impossible, I think, to just brush this kind of a warning off from Jesus Christ. Uh, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Um, but have we not all received the same warning? Peter, the Apostle Peter will go on to write in the Bible, 1 Peter 5, 8-9, Be sober-minded, be alert, 
your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. Your adversary, the devil, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers around the world. Those are the words written by Peter years down the road, years of church planting, years of of taking beatings for the name of Christ, years of suffering for the name. But right now, uh, this Peter we see on this night, he simply responds to Christ's warning with this, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, don't worry about me, Jesus, I've got this. Don't worry about this. I'm prepared to follow you both into prison and to death. Peter's response isn't to pray for the Lord for help. It wasn't to express that as a sinful man, I can trust God for my help. Peter's response on this night is a statement of trust in himself. I will follow you anywhere. I will pursue you, Jesus, whatever happens. And sitting in this warm room with friends sharing a good meal, no Roman guards in sight for Peter. It's easy to see how this comfort builds self-deception into even the best of us, right? Satan is roaring around, prowling around like a roaring Lion looking for anyone he can devour. We can read that, but does that set a, a chill and a fear into our bones when we're sitting home and we're watching the TV or, and the heat is on and it's cold outside? Not so much. And on this night, Peter is deceived by the comfort he's in. Thankfully, Jesus sees all things and is doing what Peter should have been doing, that is praying for help for Peter. Jesus says to him, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. And you, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. So this goes over Peter's head at the time as as this unfolds, we'll see. But I hear the echo of what Jesus says to Peter here in the verses we just mentioned before. He says, I've prayed that your faith, and and, uh, Peter will write years down the road, resist him firm in the faith. He says, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. He said, your fellow believers around the world are having the same experience. But on this night, Jesus says to him, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny me three times. You might be confident you can resist Satan's lies, he says, his temptations, but you will fail tonight. And I find there's a tension here in the words of Jesus to Peter. Uh, If I paraphrase, he says, Peter, I have prayed that your faith might not fail you, he says. And then he finishes with, Peter, you will fail me. Okay, Peter, I pray, this is the Son of God, God himself, I pray that you will not fail me. Peter, you will fail me. The question is, has the prayer of Jesus been ignored here? Has God given permission to Satan to attack Peter because Peter has failed him, has let him down? Why is it that 
the events of tonight are going to happen? Is it in spite of or despite Jesus' prayers here? So preparing uh, Peter for the events that are about to come as we lead up into Easter, uh, Jesus now turns to prepare the rest of his disciples for what is to come. Luke 22, 35-38, he also said to them, When I sent you without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? So Jesus is taking their minds back to Luke chapter 9, where he sends them out into all the villages, says don't take money, don't take sandals, don't take all of these things, it will all be provided for you. And they go out and they're casting out demons and they're healing the sick and they're proclaiming the word of the kingdom of God and they come back to Jesus. He says, just as you said it would be, and they're on this huge emotional high. And now Christ is saying, this is going to change. Because they say, not a thing, they said. And then he said to them, but now... Whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That is enough, he told them. So how they've done the mission before is very different. It's not changed. It's not the same. When they did the mission before, the people in the villages saw Jesus as the man who might drive out the Romans. Jesus as the healer. Jesus as the teacher. But in the coming event of Easter, that's not going to be the case anymore. As was written centuries before, Jesus came to suffer and be rejected and be killed by the people of Israel. His name is not what it was in those villages. It's much like us on mission today, right? The name of Christ isn't what in our community what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Jesus will be seen as a hateful person. Everything he did will be forgotten in the hatred of these people. His followers, Jesus is saying, do not expect help from them anymore. You should even, he says, be taking a sword. Uh, a lot of people trip uh, on these on these words from uh, Jesus here. And there's usually set up as two options on how to interpret them, right? Um, some say this is our justification to arm ourselves. Uh, there was a recently, a couple of years ago, a, a college, a Bible college president in the United States argued, all Christians go out, get your gun permit, and carry a, a pistol on you at all times. If someone comes for you, you use that thing. Now, I've got one in my back pocket right now, he said famously on stage, erupting a huge war of words. I think this is a pretty obvious misreading of the text. Uh, we don't see this attitude in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 4, 25 to 31 show the church only arming themselves with prayer and faith in God when threatened. Before this night is over, Jesus will prevent his followers from using a sword. I don't see how this can be a real sword, a real weapon. Others will argue that it's the word, the Bible. Now you take the word out as a weapon, sharper than any two-edged sword. I don't see that either in this context. Uh, the other items on the list are physical, real things. Uh, it would be confusing, I would suggest, if he was mixing his imagery and his metaphors. Why not just say, take, take the sword. Take your word. I think... Uh, here, as he's preparing his disciples to go on mission, uh, is Jesus is referring to the sword 
meritophorically. So when I was in uh, grade 10, I was 15 years old, uh, I had done something silly in class. I actually don't even remember what it was. Uh, but the teacher was highly upset with me, and I was sent to the principal's office, and word had gone ahead of me, like some kid had been given a note, go give it to the, the principal. Jake's on his way. He's done this thing. And as I was leaving the room, the teacher said to me, Jake, I hope you've got your boxing gloves on. Now, was the teacher saying, put your boxing gloves on? It led to a very interesting meeting when I walked in to see the principal. <laughs> or were they saying, you're in a lot of trouble now? This is serious. See, I think when he said, take your sword, it's metaphorically like saying, better have your boxing gloves on, disciples. There's opposition out there now that there wasn't before. I've been ridiculed. I'll be tortured. They will reject me. They're going to reject you. This is serious. The disciples like Peter respond with confidence in themselves. We have two swords. Look, they say. And Jesus just dismisses this with enough. Right? In calling them to be prepared, again, like Peter, their reliance is on themselves. We can do this. Here's our swords. Count them, Lord. So he winds up this last supper having prepared Peter for the attacks of Satan. He's now prepared his disciples for the rejection that is going to come their way. He hasn't taken the mission away from them. He's just telling them it has changed. Your mission to go and, and preach the gospel to all nations stands. But it has changed. The reception will have changed. And now he's going to lead them into the garden on his last night before the arrest. And Jesus, we're going to see an image of him preparing himself. Christ is now preparing himself for what is to come. 34 to 46. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. We're in the garden now. Next week is Easter. This is, this is on the cusp of these things, these events. Jesus has been praying that Peter won't fail. He now instructs all the disciples to be praying that they won't fall into temptation. And he himself withdraws a short distance in order to pray. Jesus prays honestly and openly to God, openly sharing his emotions with God the Father, asking him to take this cup away from him if possible. Jesus knows the enormity of what he's been sent for. This is not a false, how are you, I'm okay, oh, everything's wonderful moment from Jesus. How's your week been? Fantastic. Now, how's your prayer life? Oh, wonderful. He's sweating like drops of blood. Why his people sleep a stone's throw away? I think he models something for us as when we pray on the cusp of things we know are going to hurt and harm us. 
my prayer. It's certainly our prayer at Anchor Church as things have gone wildly different to how we would anticipate. People we trusted turned out not to be trustworthy. People we were iffy about have taken incredible gospel strides for us. Things that we thought were going to be blessings poured into our life have not happened. Other times people have come against us with opposition, but our prayer has always got to be this. It will be the prayer here in Gospel Church. Not my will, but yours be done. What is Jesus saying here on the verge of his crucifixion and incredible suffering? Not my comfort first, Lord, but your will. Not don't spare me this agony, this suffering, this sacrifice at the expense of your will, Father. That's our story at Anchor Church. Not perfectly, no way. But in terms of transforming and modelling and refining us, we have had to abandon our comfort for his will. Not my comfort, not my safety, not my security first, Lord, but your will. And I love, and it's so instructive how God answers that prayer to Jesus and how so often he's going to answer that prayer in the lives of his followers. And that is not to change his plan, not to change his perfect will, which has been set down and laid out before the foundation of the world, right? That plan isn't changing. What does he, how does he respond to his people who, who pray like this? And Jesus, he sends an angel to strengthen him. He hasn't changed his plan, but he's strengthened the one who is walking in the plan. He ministers to us. He changes us to walk in the ways of his plan. And so often we pray for God's plan to change. This is too hard and I'm scared and I have prayed like this. I've probably prayed like this in the last month. And when we pray like that, we think what needs to change is your plan, God. We need you to change your plan. It's too hard. And we so often miss that he answers his prayer by sending us someone. Have you called out? for the Lord to answer this prayer? Has he sent people around you to gather with you and to carry you and to love you and to bear your burdens? That is so how often he's going to answer these prayers to strengthen us. But if we're looking for God's will to be changed and it doesn't and we fall into that trap of withdrawing, well, we're out of God's plan. He will draw us back in and make you that much more painful. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when it seems too hard and you're calling out to the Lord's name, don't neglect to gather with his people. More often than not, that is how he's going to answer your prayer, to send someone with that word, that encouragement, that love, that gift to keep you going. The plan isn't changing. His love for you isn't changing. His plan for you is for you to change, to be more like Christ. And there is joy and there is freedom in this. 
And so I'd urge you not, like the disciples, to be asleep, to pray for your comfort to remain rather than God's plan and will in your life. If we we look back at the disciples now, we can see they're asleep, right? It's a good night. They've had good food. There was wine on the table. And now while Jesus is literally sweating blood and pouring his heart out to the Father, his people are asleep. Warned repeatedly about what's about to happen. He could not make it clearer. Rather than pray, they fall asleep. Jesus comes back to his people and he calls them again to prayer, right? I think if I wanted to sum up in this like um, this passage today, uh, uh, like the whole story of the church in Australia at the moment, this is how I would sum it up. Jesus is calling them to wake up and be strengthened by God to resist temptations while the enemy is approaching. Right? He's calling his people, wake up, be praying. Satan's out there prowling like a lion, looking for people to devour. Wake up. And it's as he does this uh, that his betrayal uh, unfolds. Uh, Verses 47 to 53. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. After touching his ear, he healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests, temple police, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. Evil has come for Jesus in the garden. As evil does, hiding its motives from the crowd, pretending love where there's only hate. And still, Jesus doesn't resist with violence. He exposes their cowardice and their hypocrisy by calling it out. Doesn't resist. So Peter, self-confident, I've got this Peter, thinking even now that he can save Jesus and avert what's going to happen, lashes out with the sword and takes the ear off one of them and gets rebuked by Jesus. Jesus is taken and led as a captive into the high priest's house. The talk, the lead up, uh, the fear, everything that has been building to this moment has happened. We go back to Peter, who we started our journey with. He has made a private commitment to Jesus to stand by him in public. And now that it's all public, what will Peter do? What has he privately committed himself to? Will he publicly follow through with? Right? Luke 22, 54-65. They seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, 
This man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. There isn't much left of the confident Peter uh, who began this night with. His faith appears gone. The disciples, those with the two swords, are eager. Uh, they've fled. Uh, I want to read this scripture uh, and, and contemplate Peter on this night uh, with a gracious and loving mindset. Uh, there but for the grace of God have all of us been <coughs> under enough uh, trials and temptations. So Jesus has been taken into the, the house where we questioned a number of times at the centre of these houses were the courtyard. So initially when reading this, I kind of pictured the courtyard as we would construct it as you walk into the courtyard, then into the house. Well, that doesn't kind of make sense but with how it all flows. But the courtyard is the centre of this house, and so it's ringed by the houses. And so there's, in the centre of this courtyard, it's a cool evening. Uh, in Jerusalem, they would have had a fire going. Uh, it was quite standard in the centre. So it's not that Peter's on the outside on the precipice of going in, he's actually in the middle of this building with the people who have just seized Jesus, right? He's followed them in. And he sat down around them and he gets recognised. And then a serving girl, probably in her early teens, right? Big, brave Peter. This girl in her early teens sees Peter and challenges him and he denies knowing Jesus. And then over time, two other men on separate occasions will challenge him about his relationship and he will again deny knowing Jesus. In the last one, I think, you see the mood in the group changing a little bit. Uh, this is how I read it. It's not uh, explicit in the text. He says, the last one says, certainly this man was with him, right? Certainly. It's like everyone knows Peter's with him. He's a Galilean. Certainly this man was with him. And I just picture, I've been in those kind of, I've come from a kind of a sporting background, that kind of blokey, masculine contempt you have for someone who's a bit weak, uh, someone who you could crush, right? And they kind of, certainly this man was with him. I hear when I read this, the contempt for Peter in the crowd. He's by the fire. He's on the inside. He's as far away from these people as you can be. Contempt. They hear his denials, right? So this happens and then the rooster crows. And Peter's just like denying everything. We don't see uh, this reaction from Peter. Uh, but now it says the rooster crows and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He's been dealing with the contempt from the crowd. Now Jesus looks at him. Looks at Peter standing with those who've captured Jesus. Sees G Peter denying even knowing Jesus. You see, we don't see our own reflection or who we are in our community, in our contempt, or in our popularity. I think back 
to Peter's first meeting with Jesus on the boat where he says, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I think Peter has got a fresh grasp on this night, the depth of his sin. And he weeps bitterly. Bitterly. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling of shame when you realise that the worst thing someone might say about you is true. That's probably that moment predates my conversion to faith by about half a second. Um, Serving in the federal police, becoming so many things that I despise, uh, is when I was confronted by Christ with who I really was. So I don't read contemptuousness towards Peter here. I'm with Peter by that fire. So our question is, Peter is broken and confronted with who he really is. Um, Is did Jesus' prayer for Peter that we began with fail? Is this a triumph for Satan in the life of Peter? Uh, is Christ prayed but in vain? And we actually have like we have a dog in this fight because Jesus prayed for us in, in John 17 on this night. Okay, He prayed for us. Is Christ's prayer going to be answered on our behalf? Or will God be saying, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no? Are the prayers of Jesus effectual in the lives of his people? Well, I think on this night, Peter's faith has been utterly destroyed, but only in himself. Peter's faith in himself is what's been destroyed. The more self-reliant we are, the more we journey away from understanding that first understanding we had of ourselves as sinners, the more we replace mission with comfort, the more vulnerable we are to these lies of Satan. The lies that said others will fall, but I'm better than that. The lie that says my lifestyle here in Australia means Satan is far away from me. The lie that says this kind of attack only happens overseas where missionaries work, not here in Australian communities where we play football on the weekend and everyone's kind of happy all the time. I think we would do well, brothers and sisters, to pray that we do not enter into temptation. But we do, and like Peter, we need God's grace. We need God's help. And like uh, Peter's story, I want to keep going with Peter's story because I think we'll see why this is not a victory for Satan. In John 21, we see Peter is back on the fishing boat. John 21, Peter is back on a fishing boat, like where it all starts for him in Luke 5. Once again, like in Luke 5, on that day, uh, they are catching nothing. Scripture says they're catching nothing. They're fishing again, catching nothing. Someone's on the shore and directs them to where there are fish, and again, the nets are miraculously filled with fish. Think of this time I'd be going, this feels vaguely Familiar. This feels vaguely familiar. Someone yells out, uh, it's Jesus on the beach. And Peter, right, 
desperately needing restoration because he's realized he has nothing in and of himself. Peter leaps into the ocean to lead the charge to see Jesus again. He's that desperate to see him. All the illusions Peter had about himself are just ashes on the ground. He needs to see Jesus again. Jesus cooks him breakfast around a fire. Peter's journey uh, began with a statement of faith when fishing and ended with three denials around a fire. On this day, Peter's back on the boat. He's made his statement of faith. He's leapt into the ocean because he's pursuing Christ again. And now he's sitting around a fire again. God is so powerful and in control of calling us back to himself. Jesus, where Peter's denied Christ three times around a fire in Luke, three times Jesus will ask him, do you love me? And draw him back and reaffirm him. Peter is restored. He's now even given the task of helping others. The, the, the journey of, of Peter from the first boat to the second boat, the first fire to the second fire. Just weeding out the self-reliance. So I would argue in these events that despite the attacks of Satan, Peter's faith in Jesus is stronger. The prayer of Christ stood. The only thing Peter lost was the illusions about himself. So when we are sifted like wheat, and as a church, as a new church, uh, the enemy will not want this to flourish. Okay? We need to trust that God still has us. It may not look like it. But he will allow things to unfold, and this was our story, to remind us that only Jesus is truly strong, that only Jesus is truly good. And that when our faith is in Jesus and not in ourselves, then we are truly secure. So Peter, uh, I want to finish with the words of Peter written to churches decades after, probably after these events, right? We read them earlier. But after Peter's journey of, of falling due to uh, self-reliance and reinstatement due to faith in Christ, we'll write to other churches like ours about what it looks like. He writes, Be sober-minded, be alert. The opposite of that is to be asleep and comfortable, right? Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Okay, so there's uh, our enemy is comfort and sleepiness because we have an adversary. Resist him firm in the faith. Uh, you don't need firm in what faith? Faith in Jesus. Knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Christ allows this stuff to purify his church, to reinstate us and call us back when we are falling asleep. I'll pray and we'll, uh, and we'll move into communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for what you are building here in Port Vincent, Lord. It's, um, it's a beautiful thing to come and visit so early in a church's life. 
Uh, but Father, you are in complete control. And Lord, you are building a firm foundation here, Lord, that will bear fruit in years to come. Father, I, I pray uh, that they will not fall into temptation, Lord. Father, I pray uh, that they are firm in the faith, Lord, that uh, the answer to every problem and question that will be thrown at this church is always Jesus Christ. Not try harder, but believe and pray more. Father, uh, build in them a great love for one another, Father. Lord, build in them that spirit of perseverance that leads to character, which leads to hope. Lord, I thank you uh, for the opportunity to open your word with my brothers and sisters here, Lord. Uh, I am greatly encouraged by them. Father, uh, we pray all of these things, trusting, loving, and following our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen.